Well, as I said earlier, and as you can tell by the music and the prayers we're dealing, or the text that we're preaching out of this evening deals with fear. And so I just want to open up by asking the question, what is it you're afraid of? What is it you are afraid of? Now, when I say that, ask that question, there's all kinds of things that could come to mind. I think of the show Fear Factor. Remember that show where you know people would like... You tackle their fear of heights and do, or they would lay in a box with like a bunch of bugs crawling on them or weird things like that or put a snake in their pants if they're afraid of snakes. It's, it's ridiculous. So there's that kind of fear you might be afraid of. Uh, there's maybe the fear of public speaking. I mean, they say that the fear of public speaking is the number one fear in, in America or something like that. Uh, maybe you have the fear of failure so that prevents you from engaging in different activities. Here's the thing about fear. Fear is tied up with reverence and it's tied up with respect. So I think about this as, a, as an ex-coastie um, with, about respect for the sea. Um, people that aren't afraid in some way of the ocean are foolish. They don't respect its power, its unpredictability. It's people without fear of that which ought to be feared that are foolish. So, in some ways then, fear can be helpful. And I think back, gosh, 10 or 12 years ago now, I was at a national park in Colorado. And uh, it was the time of year in the fall when the male elk do their bugling and they fight over the females. And so I'm driving looking for a herd. I spot a herd. There's about 15 or 20 other cars pulled off to the side of the road. In typical national park fashion, there's one of those wooden rails. And there's all these people lined up with binoculars. So we're all behind this wooden rail, 200 yards maybe away are these elk just smashing each other and a car pulls up and a guy and his 10 year old son get out and they come up to the rail and they look at the elk and they look at us like what are you guys doing here and they start to walk towards the elk and they're Plate said Idaho. I mean, do I need to continue the story? No, I'm just kidding if you're from Idaho. No, uh, but it's a guy and his 10-year-old kid, and they get within like 20 feet of these elk that are fighting. Now, if you are not afraid to bring your child within 20 feet of a 1,000-pound animal that's all amped up on whatever testosterone, I guess, that they have, and is fighting with another one with 5-foot antlers, all to impress a girl elk... I don't even know what to say about that. Probably there's not words I should say in a sermon, but it's just stupid. Fear can be helpful. It can actually keep you alive in certain situations. Now thinking in the terms of of, of the Bible, the Bible is the story of God's creating the world, of creating you and me, human beings, men and women in His image. And, and the reason he created people, it says in the book of Genesis, is to reflect his glory to all of creation. The Bible is the story of human rebellion against God. It's the story of God interacting with those people as they rebel. The Bible is the story of God's relentless love and his sacrifice and his rescuing. And throughout the Bible, God loves us in such a way where, you know, the one who actually created us and created our world, He actually knows the best way to live. So, along the story, 
He gives us different commands. The Bible is not a list of commands, as some people think. It's actually this grand narrative of the story of God. But within that narrative, there are commands. And here's maybe the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Hopefully you've, you've heard of that one. Uh, there's um, love one another. There's the command to pray. There's the command to defend the poor and the powerless. And then there's the famous do nots, you know, do not murder. That's a good one. Uh, Do not commit adultery. Do not do religious activities just to impress other people. And the most common command in all of the Bible, as Justin said earlier, is do not fear. Do not fear. That command is more common than love your neighbor. Can you believe that? Now we just saw how proper respect or fear of the sea or aroused aggressive elk can be wise, right? So what is God saying when he says, do not fear? Maybe God's command not to fear is is aimed at irrational fears. Like I've heard of grown men who scream like little girls when surprised by a spider. Have you heard of it? Yeah. I mean, we don't even have deadly spiders around here. And I'm pretty sure, like I'm no mathematician, but I probably outweigh the average house spider by, what, hundreds or thousands of times? I don't know. Collins, help me out here. But I mean, I shouldn't be afraid of a little spider, but I often will be found to squeal. Is that what God is talking about when he's saying, do not fear? I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure God doesn't want me to be confounded by fear of a a spider, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here. In fact, in the context of, of our passage tonight, Matthew 10, Jesus has gathered his disciples. And for some time now, the disciples have listened to Jesus teach. They have watched him heal. They have witnessed him firsthand cast out demons. And in all of this, they have heard him and seen him proclaim the gospel. That means the good news of the kingdom of God. And in the beginning of chapter 10 in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus deputizes His disciples. He charges them with the proclaiming of the kingdom of God. And He tells them to go out and tell the world that the kingdom is coming, that it's at hand, and that Jesus is the King. In Matthew 10, 16-23, Jesus warns His disciples, Alright, you're excited, you get to go in my authority and go, go heal people and you get to proclaim this good news, but just be warned, you will be persecuted. In fact, those verses say that all will hate you because of my name. And, He tells them, when they're met with opposition, they are not to retaliate with violence. In fact, he says you're to go out and proclaim this good news in a gentle, harmless spirit like doves, using the wisdom like a snake. And I am sending you out as a defenseless sheep into a pack of wolves. So now I imagine that their countenance is falling a little bit. Like, really? You're kind of setting us up for failure here. And so, that's where we get to our passage tonight. Matthew 10, 24-31. And these are Jesus' words of encouragement to His disciples. Would you stand with me please as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 24-31. through 
A disciple is not above his master, his teacher, nor is a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. Now, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. When I tell you in the darkness, speak into the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim among the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna, or hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Pray with me. Lord, this is a challenging word. And I pray that we wouldn't... uh, Just be closed off to it. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds. And Holy Spirit, we pray for your ministry. That you would convict each one of us where we are living in fear. And that you would also encourage us and and remind us that we've been adopted into the household of God. Fill us with humility and boldness. Amen. You may be seated. So I said it before I read the passage, but I'll say it again. In context, our text this evening is meant to encourage the disciples. So whatever I say tonight, it's meant to be an encouragement, okay? Jesus' words here are an encouragement to us. And he has three main ways or three points he's making uh, of encouragement. And the first is a bit of encouragement By giving us a little bit of perspective. Perspective is always good. In the Jewish worldview, a student's highest aspiration was to be like their master. You know, in our culture, we say things like, I often often really hope that my kids far exceed me. I I hope they go on to be uh, better people than I do, have a better stamp on the world than I do, do greater things for Christ than I ever get to do. I I hope that. I sincerely do. But you have to remember that, or maybe not remember if you never knew, I'm telling you now, that in the first century Jewish worldview, that was not even a concept that a person would think. Your highest aspiration would be to match that of your teacher. People didn't think of, I'm going to be greater one day than my teacher. You just wanted to be, uh, to, to, to match your teacher. I mean, people were infatuated with the rabbis. They would literally follow them so close, they, they hoped the dust of their feet would stick to their clothing. Now, I know we would never admit this out loud, but sometimes we live with the false idea that if we do the right things, if we live the right kind of way, that God will shield us from suffering. Sometimes, I I think we're honest, we live with that false idea that if we just do the right things, 
that God will shield us from suffering. And don't get me wrong. You, your life will most likely be better if you live a good life, right? It has its advantages. If you have integrity, for example, if you're not a liar, people will most likely trust you, and that's a great thing. Uh, if you treat people with respect, most likely you will go farther in life than if you are a complete jerk. But don't we know a lot of people in positions of power in our world that are complete jerks, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean... Uh, it, it's just a natural outcome of living a good life. You'll oftentimes be rewarded for that. But as disciples, we sometimes get surprised, I think, when suffering comes our way. We feel offended, that it, it, or almost offended by God, that if we're doing something in the name of Jesus and we suffer for it, that's messed up. It can make us wonder, what's going on? Is this supposed to happen? Is something wrong? Is God on vacation? You know, uh, John the Baptist, the forerunner for Christ, got arrested. And he's sitting in his, in his cell in Herod's prison. And he sends out a deputation of his disciples to go ask Jesus, Are you really the Messiah? Because if you're really the Messiah, like something's messed up that I'm here in jail. Even John succumbed to this, I think. Jesus is quick to encourage us that persecution should be expected. There's Jesus himself, the Lord, right? He's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's even raised people from the dead. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And you know what the religious leaders called him was Beelzebul, which means Lord of the Flies or Lord of Filth. And by the first century, that, that title came to, be, came to be, have the meaning of Prince of Demons. Like they called the Lord the Prince of Demons and he was doing all these great things. So if Jesus gets called the Prince of Demons, should his students... His disciples, should you and I expect like better treatment? In fact, the early Christians in the Roman Empire were accused of being cannibals because of their communion service and the words that we say about the, the bread being the body of Christ and the wine being the blood of Christ. They're marginalized for that. And because Christians refused to worship the Roman gods, they were accused at times of being atheists. I mean, can you even imagine that happening today? They, yeah, a different time and place, right? That, that Christians would be accused of being atheists. But, you know, if you've ever been snubbed for your faith, if you've ever been passed over for a job because of your faith, if you've ever applied your faith and maybe you've stuck up for someone who is weaker than you and then incurred the wrath of somebody else, if you've ever thought, Jesus, I'm just trying to obey you and it doesn't pay, hear Jesus' sober words of comfort. I've not forgotten you. You're not doing it wrong. I was persecuted. I suffered and you are my student. So expect that when that happens to you, you may actually be on the right track. Jesus was treated with contempt. That's a powerful word. Let that sink in. Jesus was treated with contempt. So we can't expect much better. Right? That's, that's the logic of Jesus' encouragement. Now, I have seen that line of reasoning be abused, and so have you. 
right? There are uh, groups of people, whole Christian movements even, that just love to stir the pot, who seek out controversy, who make shocking statements just at shock value. And I'll even assume that, that these people have good motives. I'll assume that these folks just want Jesus' name to be out there and to be known and worshipped. And I'll grant that their motives are to see the kingdom values reflected in society. Okay? But this teaching that Jesus has about, hey, I was persecuted, so you'll be persecuted if you, if you follow me... It, it's completely tied contextually with the statement before it, where Jesus tells his disciples to go out gentle as doves, harmless as doves, wise as serpents, and like sheep among wolves. The passage to expect persecution is not a license to be a jerk. Right? The passage to expect persecution for following Jesus is not a license to be a jerk and then to say, well, see, I'm a real disciple because I'm getting all this flack. Notice what Jesus says his disciples will be persecuted for. The gospel. And more specifically, for proclaiming Jesus' name. Since you're going to be persecuted for my name... So don't make Jesus into the spokesperson for your own political agenda. Because that's a lot of times what happens. I don't think Jesus is a member of the NRA. I don't think, I'm not convinced that Jesus is a communist or a Republican or Democrat. So if you're being persecuted because you're an outspoken wannabe political talk show host and you just tack Christian or Jesus onto the end of any statement you were going to make anyway, good luck to you. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Don't be encouraged. <laughs> Jesus is talking about persecution for reflecting His kingdom in your life and for proclaiming His kingship with your voice. It's very specific. If you see confrontation out of a badge of honor, I'm just telling you, watch out, because that's not what this text is talking about. Okay, I got that out of the way. <laughs> but most likely, in our Pacific Northwest, don't ruffle any feathers, be politically correct kind of culture, most of us don't have that problem. I'm looking out here, most of you don't have that problem. A greater problem might be to ask ourselves, are we even living in such a way that anyone would want to persecute us? Where does my life, and ask yourself this question, where does my life, lived in obedience to Jesus, come into conflict with the world organized around things other than Jesus? Are we afraid? What idols in our lives are we afraid to subordinate to Jesus? Jesus knows our propensity to be liked, to want to fit in. He knows our carnal instinct for self-preservation. So his second encouragement to us is a reminder that he sees us, that he knows us. And that He will reward us. Don't fear people who make fun of you, who persecute you. 
Those who want to lock you up in prison or worse. If you're living for me, is the idea that Jesus is saying, and you're proclaiming the good news, I see you. Jesus is telling the disciples all of these things in the sermon, that the, the, the text that I'm preaching out of. He's telling them these things in secret, in, in darkness. The biblical, uh, when we say these things that I say to you in darkness, that's a biblical way of saying in secret. Because Jesus is very wise, and he doesn't want to come out from the mountaintop on day one and say, I'm the Messiah, because he would get strung up and he wouldn't be able to make any disciples that way. So he's telling his disciples these things on the down low. So if we were to maybe translate this verse in our vernacular, Therefore do not fear them, for nothing you do for me and my glory behind the scenes will go unnoticed. What I tell you on the down low, tweet on the internet. Okay? He's doing this in secret now because he doesn't want to sabotage his own mission. Jesus moved around a lot. He taught an obscure parable so he could have time training his disciples. But after he dies, died and rose, he sent the Holy Spirit to equip his church, to equip you and I. He told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit. But when the Spirit came, what happened? A bunch of crazy stuff. They start speaking another language, representing the nations. And they get sent out. And they start to proclaim the good news. And yep, they get arrested and they get beaten. And almost all the original 12 disciples got martyred for their faith. But the message continues to permeate and to go out into the world. And aren't you thankful it did? Because that's why we're here. Now Jesus' encouragement is that he sees He sees when you try to love someone that you know and it's rebuffed. He sees that. He knows when you take a step of boldness and tell someone about the love of Jesus and you're rejected. The encouragement here is that all of that stuff that happens behind the scenes, maybe the things you do that you don't get credit for, maybe the things you do that get you a... You know, people don't like you anymore because you talked to them about Jesus or something. He sees those things and he'll bring them to light. And what he promises is on the last day, child, you will be rewarded for those things. And what will come to light is all those who rejected the message of Jesus will also be brought up. And say, see, you you weren't right about that. On the last day... All the secrets come out. So don't be afraid of failure, is what Jesus is saying. Fear of people and what they think, that can be straight up idolatry. So what, what you know about Jesus, what you know here, can help you. If you realize that what is in secret, what happens behind the scenes, like persecution or sacrifice or denial or rejection of the gospel, if you know that those things will one day be revealed and judged, it can help you when you are faced with a hard decision. Obedience on the one hand or self-preservation on the other. Now trust me, you don't have to go looking for trouble when it comes to following Jesus. But gospel is offensive. 
It's really good news, but it's really offensive. The good news that Jesus died and rose so that we might have forgiveness of sin and new life and new creation, that implies that there's something very wrong with the world organized without Jesus in the middle. Doesn't it? I mean, if there's good news, there has to be bad news. And if, if Jesus died for forgiveness of sin, that means I must be a sinner. The good news of the cross of Jesus means facing the bad news that I need the cross in the first place. It means, no, not all roads lead to God. No, not all opinions are equal. No, not all theology is good theology. People are not inherently good without help from Jesus. I don't like saying those things, by the way, because they're offensive. When we actually begin to live out our discipleship, it will put us at odds with the world, wherever the world is at odds with Jesus. And I say that because the world is not all at odds with Jesus. There's a lot of beautiful things in, in our culture and art and nature and activities, and there's a lot of people doing really good things for other people. I just happen to think that's called provenient grace, where the Spirit is working through people who don't yet even know that they're so loved by Jesus. But where the world is opposed to Jesus, we will come into conflict if we're following Him. So, you know, take something, take a hot button thing human sexuality. If you are of age, whatever that is, and you're not having sex, our world, our media, our TV, our movies, our music, even some pop psychologists you might see on a talk show will say, you are not living a full human life. That's, that's the message. But the disciple who abstains from sex before marriage because of their devotion to Jesus and because they honor other people made in God's image, they're made to, they're made to feel marginalized. And I say that very humbly as a married person. I would suck as a single person. I'm just telling you, I, I, don't, I, I don't say that lightly. But I mean, that, that's, that's the general message that we're getting in the world. Because it's opposed, I think, to Jesus' view on human sexuality. You know what? You are a complete person if you're not having sex. That's the message uh, of Scripture in, in the Bible. Or take same-sex relationships. If you hold the view that sexual relations should be reserved for marriage between a man and a woman, you're not only seen as simple anymore. I mean, maybe that was five years ago. You're kind of a simpleton. But in some contexts, you're viewed as hateful and unjust. In fact, as I tutor in a local school, I, I heard um, when... They were going through the political stuff on uh, 74. Uh, One of the teachers was telling the class that this is an issue of justice. That is unjust to think any other way about this. But you know, as soon as you put an equal sign on your Facebook picture, you're a hero in our culture. And I'm not not taking a side here. What I'm saying is that if you take a, a biblical worldview, you will be seen as... Maybe not as smart. Maybe hateful. Jesus' encouragement to his disciples in the face of persecution 
is not assurance for those with bad arguments or hateful speech. It's for those who gently and humbly and yet boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus. Hear that. It's not, again, I can't say this enough. This is not a license to be a jerk. You, we're not responsible for the outcome of living for Jesus and proclaiming His love. You're not, so you don't have to feel like you have to beat everybody in an argument. Do you understand? We're not responsible for that. But this is assurance for those who gently and humbly proclaim the good news. That the bad news of our sin has been dealt with for us. And that brings us to Jesus' third encouragement. And I have to admit, this is a hard one. It's sobering for sure. More than just being marginalized, disciples over the centuries, and in this century, or the last century more than any other, have had to deal with fear for their lives. Jesus told us not to fear, and now He tells us, in a twist of the argument, to fear properly. He knows that we struggle with putting ourselves before obedience to Him. We try to preserve our lives, whether it's preserving our comforts or our reputations or our actual lives here on earth. And what you don't know can hurt you. If you think the wrath of people and their opinion or even their ability to take your life, if you think that is more powerful than God, than the wrath of God, ouch. Jesus says, don't fear people. Don't fear societies organized around people. They can only kill the body. They can only hurt your feelings. And ultimately, they can only execute. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I do not want to get executed. Especially don't want to get tortured. Like, do it quick if you have to. But Jesus is saying, ultimately, that's all people can do. Instead, you know, if you're really into being afraid... You should be afraid of the only one who has ultimate power over your, e your eternal destiny, your body and your soul, the very core of who you are. Let that sit for a minute, what Jesus is saying here. It's not a very fun passage to preach, by the way. I don't like saying these words. I mean, Jesus is actually telling us here, don't fear people, but if you're going to fear, fear God who kind of has the eternal destiny of who you are ultimately in His power. And it tells me something that I don't want to preach that, that I don't like saying those words. It tells me that we need to sit with that a minute. And that I need to lead you through it. The scriptures tell us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Fear, like I said earlier, is wrapped up in reverence and respect. I mentioned the ocean in the beginning of this message. I love the ocean. I, the, but the Pacific Ocean is a fearful and wonderful thing. I fear the Pacific Ocean in the truest sense of the word, which means I respect its power and my weakness. Now, I love the Pacific Ocean. I swim in it. 
I've got four years of sea time on different ships and the Coast Guard on it. I, I, I respect it. I love it. I think it's beautiful. But it is not my friend. And it has taken some of my friends. This passage about fearing God is sobering. But it's meant, remember, it's meant to be an encouragement to us. In the face of persecution, it's saying, don't hold back. People can't ultimately affect the final outcome of who you are. God sees what is done on the down low, behind the scenes. He is the one who is faithful. He sees those who deny Him, and He will judge accordingly. So it would be wise to live with reverence for God. Now, if Jesus stopped His teaching right there, it would be a tough nut to swallow, right? That's a very sobering teaching. But it would still be good news. Because any time... The one thing I think we forget, we we call Christianity a faith. You have to have faith to be a follower of Jesus. But we're on a search for truth. And... um, I wish Doc Wasserman was up here as a philosopher. I, I know that that's where our paths meld, philosophy and theology, is that we're, we're really in a search for truth. And I would much rather live even on a hard truth than in a delusion. So this is good news because it tells us the truth about who God is and that He has the power of your eternity, whereas fearing people only can, you know, can harm your body. But Jesus is so gracious, He gives us the rest of this teaching. In the ancient world, sparrows were sold for an average price of one Assyrian. Two sparrows, one Assyrian. An Assyrian was the lowest coin used in that day. It's one sixteenth of a drachma, and a drachma for like a low day laborer, that was one day's wages. So one sixteenth of a day wages. You couldn't buy one sparrow because there were no coins that small. So you got two for one Assyrian. And yet, these sparrows have great worth to the Father. He knows them. Not one falls to the ground. That means not one dies without the Father knowing it. And this same Father, who knows when a sparrow falls to the ground, knows the hairs on your head. That has two meanings. First, it's a proverbial saying. So it, it was believed in the first century you couldn't really count the hairs on a person's head. So it might be like um, so-and-so had so much money, uh, it, it, it exceeded the sands of the seashore. Now, certainly with some OCD scientists and modern technology, you might be able to actually count the grains of sand on the seashore. I don't know. But you know what I mean when I say that is it can't be done. Like it's more than you can count. And that's how it was with the hairs on people's head. It was like kind of a, uh, a saying. So when you say you know, more than the hairs on their head, it means you couldn't count that many hairs. But in saying that God knows the hairs on your head, it means that God is competent. He knows things that people don't know. And you should take security in that. He knows the hairs in your head. He's trustworthy. And when you're suffering for your faith, God knows what you're doing. And He knows what He's doing. And all of that is good news. Because of the second meaning of hairs on your head. Simply put, 
God loves sparrows, but he treasures you. He knows the hairs on your head. And even though some of you have less hair on your head than others, he knows. Maybe he knows the hairs that used to be there. I don't know. Do not fear, Jesus says. You are far more valuable than many sparrows. And I was thinking about this. Like, that's good news. I should probably sit down right now. But there's another layer of good news to this whole passage. Remember, he's saying this all in the context of the news that we are sent out to proclaim. We are sent out to proclaim the good news. The good news of God's kingdom. The good news that Jesus is the king of that kingdom. The good news of rescue and recreation. The good news that the God of the universe loves you. And whatever person you're serving, whoever you're talking with, whoever you're praying for, whoever is persecuting you, He loves them infinitely too. Think about that. The people in your life that Jesus is calling us to go proclaim the kingdom to, He already loves them more than you could possibly imagine. So I want to close with this. In light of this good news, of this kind of God, what is it that you're afraid of? Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for including us in your work of rescuing the world. Thank you for giving us the dignity of being your sent ones. Lord, I'm thankful that you know that we're people who are afraid. You know how weak we are, how fickle. It's probably, I mean, it's why you gave us this teaching in the first place. It's why your servant Paul continued to write to the early Christians to encourage them and to challenge them. Lord, you know each of us, you know each of our hearts. My prayer is that for each of us, Lord, you would help us to take one step in the right direction, Lord. Help us to leave this place into the normalcy of our, of our week. And help us to have your perspective on things. The long view of life with you. Help us to be sensitive to your spirit where you're inviting us into conversation uh, to, with someone to tell them about you. Or uh, when you're inviting us into a, an opportunity to serve someone. And I pray, Holy Spirit, for the gift of conviction. That you would be um, a holy tapping sh- uh, finger on, on our shoulders, re- reminding us that this is an opportunity from the living God to reflect the kingdom and the king in our world. Lord, help us to walk in boldness. Thank you that perfect love casts out all fear. Amen.